Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. First two years of life, so much of the core dispositions that are durable are established. Countless interpersonal relational interactions between the child and the parent. When the child is frightened, its attachment-seeking system switches on, and it is through all of the priming that has been shaped by natural selection. The impulse is to connect with a caregiver, to feel safe, seen, soothed, and so forth. And if the needs for attention and safety and connection are met, then the child feels safe. And the child's attachment-seeking system switches off. And then the exploration system switches on, which now the child feels reassured. Its emotions have been regulated. And now the child is ready to go back into its environment and explore the world. Once again, when the child is frightened, overwhelmed, uh, sad, uh, in any, or even extremely happy, or... uh, excited or shocked or disgusted, the attachment-seeking system switches on and the child turns towards a caregiver for security. And then when needs are met, then the attachment system switches off and the child's exploration system switches on and the child returns to the world with confidence and resilience. And this pattern Uh, there throughout the entirety of our life. Uh, From cradle to grave, as Bowlby, the great psychologist, said, when we feel shocked, disgusted, frightened, overwhelmed, uh, we have any memorable, resonant emotional experience, the attachment system in some ways switches on. We yearn to connect with others, to express the affect state we're in so that another person will see, emotionally mirror us, and so forth, to downregulate our nervous system, then we go back to the world. If we are in a prolonged state of isolation or social distancing, or there's just nobody around, then hopefully by the time we're adults, we have cultivated internal resources the feeling of other people care about us has been embedded in us so that we can go for a while without having people available who can regulate our emotions. So we ourselves can do what's called auto-regulate. We can actually uh, self-soothe ourselves when we are emotionally distressed. If our needs as children or adults aren't met, the child will resort to maladaptive coping strategies, and we'll talk about what those are. The patterns of whether we feel safe or unsafe, whether we have the resources to feel resilience and bounce back from setbacks and obstacles, uh, to the degree that we can 
restore and, and regulate ourselves is established in these first two, two and a half years, in the first eight or 900 days of our life, when the right hemisphere of the brain is being formed. And interestingly, the neural connections in the right brain are, are formed in this really early stage. And then after about three years, the right brain's neural, uh, the synaptic connections and the neural circuits largely have been formed. And that creates those what I call durable dispositions or what some psychologists call schemas or internal working models. They are feelings we have, feelings about ourself, feelings about how other people will respond to us, feelings about how safe we are, feelings about how trustworthy other people are. For example, in my childhood, I know from my earliest memories that both my parents were quite good at expressing delight whenever myself or my sister did something creative. When we would draw something or uh, dance or sing, or I would try to whack out a tune on an, uh, one of the uh, instruments that my parents had bought to keep me uh, creative. Uh, whenever, whenever I did anything creative, my parents would express delight. And so when I am before you now, or when I'm doing something creative, or when I am uh, in any way being vulnerable in front of other people, there's a degree of worthiness and a feeling of joy that I feel in the vagal cluster in the front of my body. Because early in life, my right brain, which controls uh, the bulk of my body states and, you know, or which is far more influential on body and mood and emotions was associated being creative in front of other people with a positive response. So the sense of joshness when I'm in front of people, you know, talking about ideas is, um, feels good. My, the vagal tone is strong, so my heart rate goes down, my respiration rate goes down, I feel a sense of warmth in my heart center, I feel the muscles in my belly relax, and I feel uh, an embodied state of confidence. Now, on the other hand, um, my dad had extreme uh, mood shifts when he would drink. He was an alcoholic until I was 12, and so many times he would transform from being a uh, available and safe um, uh, figure to a figure that was violent, scary, and um, where I felt actually scared of him. And so my sense of joshness at times when I would be in situations of male peer, peer bonding, when I'd be around other men, instead of feeling that warmth and um, that worthiness that I associate with creativity, I'd feel another feeling, joshness at that time, that feeling of that creates that sense of self. 
um, would be vulnerable and scared and uh, feel, feel very ill at ease. And so the impulse became to drink when I was around other guys as much as possible to downregulate or inhibit that felt sense of anxiety or a lack of safety. So throughout different situations in childhood, the, ex the expressed emotions that parents reflect to us are embodied or internalized. And later on in life, when we are in similar situations, we will feel in the felt sense that Carl Rogers and, you, and Genlin and um, uh, so many other somatic therapists talk about, the felt sense will correspond. So if in early childhood, um, when we felt frightened, there was a predictable availability of care and we'd be met with tolerance, then even in adult life, when we feel a degree of fear, there still will be this tone of confidence that we'll be able to work through it. But if in childhood, during times where we felt um, uh, excited, but no caregiver was available to uh, present or create a safe container for that emotion, whether we were excited or overwhelmed or disgusted or shocked or whatever, if those emotions weren't met with a sense of recognition, then as those emotions begin to appear, the felt sense will also be one of vulnerability and aloneness and we will adapt these maladaptive coping strategies to regulate them. So what needs to happen for us to have a healthy sense of self starting in childhood and into our adult life? Well, we need four qualities, some uh, great uh, attachment uh, psychologists say five, some say three, I'm going to go with four. Uh, the four that are very common is one, we need to feel that there's someone who will uh, create a sense of safety in us, safety from threats. And that's the basic evolutionary function of attachment. And if there's a predictable sense of safety, then most of us at the very least will begin, have a, a fundamental capability of in any affect state we're in, we will have the sense that there will be people out there who can help us process it. The second quality is the sense of being seen and understood. And that's when we not only feel there's someone who's, who allows us to feel safe, who creates, who's available and won't go away, but there's also someone who when, no matter what state we're in, we feel seen and understood. Our feelings are mirrored, uh, the person gets it. Whatever you know, state we're in, they're not overwhelmed. They don't, we don't have to present for them. There's a sense that somebody can tolerate whatever affect state we're in and so, um, that's the second quality. And then the third is someone who makes us feel soothed and reassured after setbacks and abandonments. 
soothed means if we're upset, then being in their presence, maybe just their, their touch or the softness of their vocal tone, or maybe their, just their presence, but our emotional state, um, the vagal uh, nerve switches on, switches us out of fight, flight, or fawn back into the uh, rest and digest and social engage system of the nervous system which is sometimes referred to as the window of tolerance. So, so far we've got safe, seen, soothed. And the fourth quality is my favorite. I know it's also my friend Jessica Mori's favorite too. Uh, that is someone who delights in us, someone who expresses joy when they see us, someone who really appreciates our developmental growth and when we reach developmental milestones, someone who delights in just our presence and, and uh, you know, the sense of being with us. And if we get that fourth quality, somebody who delights in our just connecting and delights whenever we are del is delighted in our creativity and so forth, then when we think about ourself in the future and when opportunities happen or when we are taking risks or trying out new capabilities or new skills, we will have a felt sense of joy associated with our sense of self. And that is vitally important to be resilient in life to persevere and so forth. So it's really important to note that a healthy sense of self is um, a visceral experience. It's not a story. When we talk about stories, that is, or identity beliefs, that is a, uh, a, a set of language-based statements like Josh is a, uh, a Buddhist Jew from New York who is a Buddhist pastor who gives lots of talks on psychology and attachment theory and the Dharma and coherence therapy and different uh, modalities. And he's also uh, uh, um, someone who uh, also composes music and blah, blah, blah. So the story of who I am is not what we're referring to. Resilience and confidence does not come from a resume or a recited autobiography that we can recite in words. Resilience, confidence comes from a feeling that is elicited when I think of myself or when someone offers me an opportunity or when I have been through a setback the feeling I get, and the, by feeling I'm talking about the physiological shifts in my body, such as my heart becomes warm, or my chest becomes tight, my stomach becomes clenched, or my abdomen releases, my throat feels choked or open, the muscles in my face 
are softened or the jaw is clenched and the respiration rate jumps up or relaxes or I'm talking about my attention becomes jumpy and all over the place or my attention becomes very, I feel in the back of my head or maybe it's my attention begins to settle and relax. So that, those are the felt sense of self that creates our, not only our sense of self, but creates resilience. It creates confidence. It creates a sense of well-being. It creates emotional stability when we're not connected with others. It allows us to persevere. So once again, it is not a story. Stories emphasize uniqueness. Stories tell why we are different from everyone else. Feeling states in no way differentiate us from anyone else. And in fact, feeling states have a great degree of commonality to them because all the feelings we have are not in any way unique to us. The fact that I can feel jumpy or anxious or content is not unique to me. Those are affect states that are known by pretty much everyone, maybe in different shades of experience, but pretty much there's not, our feelings don't isolate or make us unique. So the key is by adult life to cultivate an internal resource or an internal feelings of, of these internal feelings of uh, being safe, being seen, being soothed, and being delighted in, as translated into feelings where the belly relaxes, the vagal nerve tone switches on, which lowers our respiration and heart rate, which allows us to digest, which and then allows the muscle groups in the shoulders to relax, allows the jaw to unclench, and the cranial muscles, which are also part of the vagal cluster release. And so there's an embodied state of ease. And also the attentional state in the mind relaxes. Now, um, in uh, the retreat, Jessica reminded me how um, in our culture as Dan Brown, she was quoting the work of Dan Brown, a great uh, psychologist who's noted that in our culture, parents are often overworked, financially stressed, without enough support. As we know it, you know, there used to be this uh, popular phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. And that's true. Parents need support. Parents need uh, more than just one or two people to raise a child. But in our culture where parents are, uh, don't have enough support uh, and very often they are overworked and stressed and uh, don't have the resources to provide all of those necessary feelings such as not stopping Make a, creating a, an interaction where the child feels safe, seen, soothed, but even going to the degree where the parent can overcome their tiredness, their frustration, their anxiousness, their uh, whatever they're facing, that parent can, can 
elicit an experience of joy, that's a lot of work. That's really a lot to expect of a parent. So many parents rely on what's called <clears throat> instrumental parenting. And um, that's the idea that the fundamental need of the caregiver is to put food on the table, to pay bills, to drive the child to school, to respond quickly to emergencies. But the other requisites of good caregiving where the parent can express this sense of joy at seeing the child, delight, or the parent can create this sense of soothingness very often is not met simply because the parent doesn't have the resources, the time, or the energy to uh, auto-regulate their emotions so that they can create a, a, uh, and embody a wonderfully safe environment for the child. So the vital roles of soothing and expressing delight upon connecting with the child often aren't provided. And if these feelings of delight, joy, soothing aren't provided, then what will happen is the child will resort to maladaptive attention-seeking strategies or maladaptive coping strategies that in turn over time can turn into uh, disorders or, or traits that undermine our resilience and compromise our ability to make lasting, secure relationships. So what are some of these strategies? Children who grow up in an environment where the parent is overwhelmed, stressed, not available, um, will resort to breaking rules to be seen. Breaking rules can turn into antisocial or oppositional defiant disorders. And those are individuals who constantly poke and pick fights with people and act in a transgressive way to be seen in childhood. They're the ones who are always in trouble in school, but then grow up to be adults who get a perverse kick out of saying things that they know will antagonize or trigger others. Um, and it's just essentially an attribute that will again compromise our ability to have resonant and uh, durable relationships. Other children will rely on heightened and excessive emotional displays, uh, really amping up their fear or their uh, their frustration, they'll have fits, and they will rely on these excessive emotional displays into adult life, and that over time can turn into what is often referred to as histrionic personality disorder. People who are often, um, uh, you know, uh, relying on uh, uh, just excessive emotions to be seen. Other examples of histrionic are children who early in life um, will either feign illness or will engage in sexually uh, inappropriate behavior um, to gain attention from peers. Um, some children will, will rely on anger and self-harm 
uh, and dramatic breakups with people to get attention. And that can form the foundation of the black and white thinking of borderline personality disorder. And of course, uh, as we all know from the, uh, the uh, uh, horrific uh, individual running this uh, country, some children will rely on grandiosity and superiority, uh, will have an insatiable need for attention-seeking that will, by adult life, blossom into narcissistic personality disorder. And so we can see how a childhood bereft of the key foundational uh, relational uh, experience of being seen and safe and understood and soothed and delighted in, if they're not met, there are clear developmental risks and long-term um, uh, patterns and drawbacks that develop. Many uh, people will cope with this lack of feeling of being delighted in, and they don't feel any sense of joy when they think of themselves. When they look in the mirror, uh, the child that has a secure childhood feels delight, and she dances, and she feels great at seeing her image. If a child has been in an abusive family, she'll feel disgust, but many children will just feel nothing. They won't feel anything when they see their image reflected back on them. And so they'll make up for this deficit in self-esteem by relying on relentless self-talk, trying to build up a story to compensate a grandiosity or a sense of value. The problem is, is as we've noted, stories, ideas, identity, beliefs, are not capable of creating the feelings of, of resilience and confidence and uh, a, a robust sense of self because that comes from feelings that are set in pre-verbal states of development. So thinking and telling stories about to try to compensate for deficits don't work. Others will rely on seeking constant reassurance from others. They become what some call reassurance junkies. And they say, you know, was I okay? Did you have a good time when we were together? You know, what do you think about me? <laughs> uh, was I, when I, when I got on stage, was I good? Did you really like it? No, tell me honestly, did you really like what I was doing? And, you know, but, you know, I know I asked you 15 minutes ago, but, did, you know, but I just want to be sure it was it okay that date we were on. So, of course, seeking reassurance doesn't work either because people, when they're seeking reassurance, it's based in languaging. And languaging is not precognitive. The events that shape our sense of self are precognitive. They're stored in the right hemisphere. The left brain, which is the brain that processes language, cannot embed or endow us with a positive, resilient sense of self. That has to be done with internal feelings. So as Shore and Kohut and Siegel and Wallen and Shaver and McEwlin, sir, and so many others, great psychologists have noted, the emotional wounds of self, the lack of self-esteem are established in those early years, those first two, two and a half years, they're stored 
unconsciously in the right orbital frontal. And the only way to, the most efficient way to heal them is by what Alan Shore, the, the, one of the most important clinical psychologists of our day who wrote the four volume affect regulation tomes of which I managed to read about half of one. It was not a page turner. Um, but I can say that uh, um, uh, Shore says over and over and over again that healing is right brain to right brain, meaning it's not based on language. It's based on the visual cues that other people mirror or uh, reflect back at us when we seek their attention. So healing is based on seeing another person's face light up with care, joy, interest, attention when we look at them. Now, from the perspective of early Buddhism and the Dharma, uh, so much of what I've just reviewed with you is found in the early texts, especially the, uh, the manual of Buddhist psychology known as the Abhi Dhamma, A-B-H-I-D-H-A-M-M-A. -M -M it's the early commentaries in the Buddha's teachings, and they turned all of the suttas into a, uh, essentially the first psychological, collected psychology of the mind. And uh, they noted that there are various different personality types that correspond to what we now know as attachment styles. And um, in the Dharma itself, uh, the Buddha teaches that the core fundamental dispositions are set very early in life in what he calls a stage of Nama Rupa, which happens right after birth when our dispositions towards the way we attend to others, our intentions, our perceptions are set. The Buddha, likewise, most fascinatingly, those core four attachment needs of being safe, seen, soothed, and delighted in are provided in the teachings of the Brahma Viharas. In the Brahma Viharas, we are asked to create internally the feelings of unconditional friendliness towards others and ourself, known as metta, which is associated with the um, feeling of being seen and being welcome. The feeling of being soothed is, in Buddhism, compassion or karuna, the sense that we care about the suffering of others and we care about our own suffering. The expressed delight and appreciation of ourselves is mudita, what the Buddha called delight or appreciative joy. And the safety is found in the daily reflections of Deva Nusati and Santi Nusati. Deva Nusati is reflecting on beings that have made us feel safe, cared about. Uh, Santi Nusati is places where we feel safe, environments where we feel we can relax. So in our practice tonight, 
what I like that us to do is we're going to reflect on people who provide, have provided either in the past or the present, those key attachment needs. So you can prepare beforehand or we can wait in, while you're in the meditation, but we're going to reflect on someone or more than one person who when we're with, we feel a sense of safety. When we're with them, we feel that they are not going to leave, not going to abandon us, not going to drop us, not going to turn away or lose interest. And we're going to think about someone who provides the two attachment needs of being seen and being soothed by. So someone, no matter what emotional state we're in, whether we feel depressed or lonely or angry or frustrated or bored, we can connect with this person and they are someone who will stop and understand listen to what our experience is and someone who will um, just by their presence, we begin to feel whatever affect state, the sympathetic activation, the fight, flight, or fawn, the desire to say or do anything uh, goes down. And instead we feel the sense of ease of being. And the last quality, we're going to think of someone who, when we connect with them, there's a sense of mutual delight, joy, recognition. Somebody who, when we're with, we really feel this sense of, of uh, just a sense of appreciation in our being. Someone who has experienced a sense of, of um, uplift in our growth and our movement through life. The person doesn't matter. It's the, we're trying to evoke the feeling in us. And in evoking the feeling in us, if we can evoke the feeling in us, that's really the resource that we'll use in the future during times when we're not with someone and we are not feeling inspired. We're not feeling a sense of joy or motivation in life and so if we can have that if we created that felt sense in us from reflecting on someone who has that feeling that through the work of doing this these practices that will start to have a, as a core attribute or felt sense when we think about ourselves that sense of being delighted in and that will translate as an affect state to you know, situations when we are trying to be creative or take risks on our own. Whew. That's tonight's talk. I hope that that was of some value in some way, trying to uh, uh, present talks that will be of value, of course. And um, uh, so we're going to do our meditation. I should note that uh, as a Buddhist pastor, uh, in New York, uh, who lives entirely by donations. If, if you still have a job <laughs> and you'd like to support my work, uh, the Venmo is Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, P-U-N-X, N-Y-C. Or you can go on the, uh, the Dharma Punks NYC website or my podcast, and there's a PayPal button. 
So, um, but obviously those of you who have wound up out of work due to the pandemic and so forth, of course, everything is provided by for free. So, you know, just for those who can uh, support uh, the teachings, I thank you for that. So let's get into a comfortable seated position and uh, closing the eyes. And just trying to find an upright position where you're, it feels like your shoulders are in line with your sit bones, that your body is not leaning forward or too far back if you're sitting, that there's an uprightness. And then we're also going to try to balance the top of the head right above in line with the sit bones. So there's this feeling of an alignment in the body straight from the top of the head through the center of the shoulder blades to the sit bones. But from that uprightness, we're going to relax the uh, key muscle group. So we'll just start by taking a nice full in-breath through the nose and squinching the muscles in the face, tighten the jaw, clench the muscles around the eyes and the forehead. And then as you breathe out, relaxing the cranial nerves so that the musculature and the jaw releases. There's a soft expression on the mouth. Your mouth's not pinched. The micro muscles around the eyes are released the eyes can can float in the eye sockets and the brow unfurrows wonderful And then another full in-breath, lifting the shoulders up towards the ears. And then before we release the breath, rotating the shoulders back and then dropping the shoulders with the exhalation, which is the exhalation is always about releasing. The inhalation is always about bringing energy into the body. So we rotated the shoulders back to open up the chest so that it doesn't feel tight for the heart center and the vagal nerve to be uh, engaged. And so the parasympathetic, we need the, this feeling of openness and ease. And then for our third breath, we're going to breathe into the belly, the abdomen, and let the abdomen expand as far as it can, like a beach ball. And then as we breathe out, release the abdomen so that it becomes soft. Don't hold it in. Don't push it out. Just allow the abdomen to be as pliant and soft and comfortable, the soft belly. And 
now just trying to come to a complete stop in life, letting go of any thoughts about what we're going to do after our meditation, any thoughts about tomorrow or the day after. We'll have time to address all of the unresolved issues, but to do that, to address unresolved issues, to face and uh, work and to attend to life, we also need to be able to come to a complete stop where we renew and rejuvenate, where we allow all the momentum of life to come to a standstill so that we can land fully in the moment. And in landing in the moment, we connect with the basic appreciation of just ourself and our existence. We connect with the possibility that we don't have to do anything to be fulfilled or to feel good about ourselves. We work on the capability of simply restoring a sense of wonder and appreciation of just aliveness. The ground zero of being, the state of simply inhabiting a body in the world, being in the world, nowhere to go, nothing to do, Nothing right now to take care of. No state of being we have to embody. Whatever we're feeling right now is perfect. There's nothing missing at all from this moment. There's nothing that you need to reconnect with the profound realization that just in being, there's so much to explore, appreciate, to be in awe of. The feeling of breathing, the feeling of inhabiting a body where moods and feelings fluidly shift. We don't have <clears throat> unique emotions. What we have are feeling states in the body and attentional states in the mind that gradually shift and flow from one state to another. And so throughout our lives, we are shifting through different states of being. But the more we stay focused on the future or the 
just fixated on the world around us, the more we lose track of the profound state of aliveness. So for a little while, we'll just breathe in silence and just allow yourself to observe all the changing internal experience. Observing your internal experience of feelings, shifting states in the heart center and the abdomen, the muscles of the face, the jaw, the shoulders lifting and lowering, the breathing picking up and slowing down. Just reconnecting with what it's like to be in a body like you've never been in a body before. You've dropped in to your body from a distant universe where people are in different forms and now you're in a human body and you're going to just explore what it feels like from the inside. Nowhere to go, nothing to do.
So at this time, I'd like to move on to the visualization practice. And so I'd invite you to reflect on the experience of being safe with someone, the quality of when you're with someone, you feel that they will not lose interest, that they will stay, that they're reliably available, that when you are with them, the, your body feels less vulnerable. The degree of threat detection goes down. And so just bring to mind someone who at some point in your life has provided you with that sense of safety. When you're with them, you feel less vulnerable. And if no one comes to mind, immediately visualize some person or individual, either real or from your imagination, that in some way could provide that quality. But hopefully you can visualize someone or just recite someone's name who you associate with safety and while you hold them in your mind or recite their name, if you will place a hand on your heart center to, to tone your vagal nerve, just to bring that sense of warmth and just note that feeling of warmth, resting there, and visualize this person looking at you with an expression that conveys a dedication to staying with you and being available. An expression that conveys that they won't leave until you feel safe again. And if you can, just allow the muscles in your face to relax. And if even the slightest unforced smile is available, that's great. But no worries if not. Feeling the warmth in the heart center, the vagal nerve cluster. A full breath in and then a release and visualize again this individual looking at you with a welcoming expression, metta, unconditional friendliness. If another individual meets or creates this feeling for you, then allow their image to arise or their name to arise. 
Again, relaxing the hand on the heart center, feeling truly safe. What we're trying to do is by visualizing, we're creating the felt sense of safety and building an inner resource of resilience. And then I'd like you now to reflect on the quality of being seen and soothed by someone, someone who in your past or today when you feel or have felt sadness or anger or frustration, loneliness, boredom or confusion, this individual has provided you with a sense of being understood, that you're not alone with these feelings, that someone else grasps and can signal through mirroring or just the way they look, a care and a tenderness that indicates they understand. And just, again, visualize that person's looking at you with that, with some expression that conveys that sense that they care. to mind someone who expresses delight, joy, when you connect, someone who really enjoys your company, 
not for anything so much that you do, but just because of enjoying being around you. Delight, relish, someone who relishes in your company. So visualize someone smiling, someone you know and care about, or someone you have known and cared about, looking at you, reflecting this sense of really savoring in your proximity to them, savoring in your being when you're together. Reflecting on individuals that create in us the core affect states of attachment and resilience and a robust and healthy sense of self. So I want to thank you for your practice. I hope that um, tonight's talk was worthwhile. And if you can thank you, if you're capable of supporting my work. And uh, so anyway, it's now.